0: Alright, let's continue uh, this morning looking into the Word of God and how God preserves uh, His Word for us. James chapter 1 verse 17 and 18 Uh, in your Bibles. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for this morning. We just thank you for the hymns. We thank you for the word of God that was read. We just thank you for the fellowship which we've enjoyed uh, because we have it in you. And we just pray that you'd bless us now as we seek to look into your word uh, more deeply. We pray that it would affect us in a way that uh, might uh, honour you. And we pray that we would grow to more maturity, Lord, that uh, we might reach uh, this world uh, with the truth, that we might be good examples and witnesses, that Christ is indeed alive and is living with us. So we just pray that... uh, He'd be glorified this morning in this message, I pray in his name. Amen. Um, The the marketplace, the the workplace is changing at a rapid pace. Um, The jobs that people went for five years ago in the next five years may not even be there. I'm not sure if you've uh, if you know that the the things are changing very very rapidly. The things that people that the that the work the workplace requires of you is changing rapidly. The courses that universities are offering are different to what they were 20 years ago, um, because the opportunities are changing and people's work's changing. Um, for over 1,000 years, um, there were people called scribes, and they had a job to do. And their job was to record, to write, and to copy things. And they did that with a quill. They did that. There are a lot of uh, bald birds out there, okay, are running around without any feathers. Um, they would use a quill uh, pen, and they'd use charcoal ink, and without seeing glasses, mind you. So, I mean, I've, I've started wearing glasses, having to read closer now. So, without... Uh, the the use of glass, because it hadn't been invented, um, by candlelight, working at night as well. And if you were copying down the Word of God, you also had the added risk of being persecuted for copying something that might have been illegal for much of that time. So you had the fear of death, of banishment. Um, These these, uh, particular individuals had to be very adept at writing and very good at writing. They had to, first of all, understand the words, and they had to be able to write them uh, legibly. Uh, and they, they had a very important job to do. Uh, they, they would write for people who were wealthy. They'd write letters for them. And they'd write, um, they'd write for lawyers and things like that. So all important documents were written by scribes. And the Word of God was copied for over a thousand years using that type of method. Okay? Um, after the printing press was invented all of a sudden things changed. You could print a page like that, one page at a time. So the fellows who had the job of scribing all of a sudden started to be less required because you could get documents out a lot more quickly and the copying part of their job was actually uh, was becoming less and less. But the Word of God was getting printed at such a fast pace that it was spreading throughout uh, the empire and throughout the entire world. And there was an explosion of information during that time. So when the printing press was invented, information was getting out at a rapid pace that had never existed before. And people had more of a thirst for knowledge. If you you, um, knew that you could actually get your own copy of a Bible for your own family at a reasonable price. So rather than hiring someone to copy a Bible, which may have cost you a whole year's wage, right? Not many people could afford a $30,000 Bible. Who can afford a $30,000 Bible here? Okay? But think about it. it would, that's what roughly it would have cost you. If you had to have a copy of the Bible for yourself, it would have taken them by hand, about roughly just a whole full year of work. That's, well, in our money today, $40,000 is, is a rough wage, let's say. And for that person, it probably even more, because they were educated, so they they actually probably were a higher hourly rate as well. So what what went from uh, having to pay something like a a $40,000 amount to have your own Bible in your hands, have a copy of the Bible, it went from that to about a few hundred dollars. All of a sudden, people started ordering their own Bibles and wanting them for themselves. And that increase of printing and learning um, came with a, a particular time in, the, in European history called the Renaissance and everyone started to ask questions and what, if people wanted to know more about God. They weren't relying on their priests anymore to tell them what, uh, what God wanted. They wanted their own copy of the Bible so they could read it for themselves. And then we have things like the typewriter that were invented which once again increased the ability of people to write. Then computers, now we have the internet where you can copy multiple um, uh, copies of the Bible for free. There's no cost. You can have multiple copies on your phone, on your computer. You can print them out as, as many times as you like. And the world is a very different place to what it was when they were writing things down. But one thing that we do know, this verse that we've just read, that every good, and, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, and he doesn't change, he doesn't waver, and he, be, he, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. In the same way those people were born again, who used to write with quill and ink, is the same way that God saves a person today. We are born again the same way that they were born again a thousand and two thousand years ago. Because we have the words. God has preserved them all of this time through the dedication of people who were copying by hand for that amount of time. Through the dedication of people who, when they invented the printing press, started printing up copies of the Bible. When the first book printed was the Bible. When the Gutenberg Press was invented, that was the first book that they they went ahead and printed. The God who promises... Um, To keep and preserve his word Has kept his word And one of the greatest gifts That he has given to mankind Because he is the giver of every perfect gift from above Is the word of God That is a perfect gift for us Um, And his promise to preserve it Has been true And the words that we have in our hands today We can have confidence in We can learn from because of what was done before and God's preserving power throughout the ages, so this this uh, this sermon today will wrap up this uh, this topic about God's preserving power and last week i I focused on how God delivered the word to us, how he gave us the word, and he gave it to his prophets, and he made sure that he delivered it perfectly so every word that he wanted written down by the prophets he made sure that they wrote down, and that those words were Memorized. We saw over and over again the emphasis in the scripture verses that I shared with you that it was the very words that mattered to God. It was the words. It wasn't just the thoughts. It wasn't just the the concepts that that mattered. It was the very words that God gave to his prophets. God then not only delivered the word, and which we call that uh, in theological terms, inspiration. Okay, so God inspired people with the word. That that's step number one. But step number two is that God entrusted the preservation of those words to Himself as well, and He has done that uh, through people. Turn with me to Psalm chapter twelve, verses six and seven, and we're going to look at that two-step process. Because some people like to distinguish uh, inspiration from you know, the original manuscripts that were written down um, from the preservation. Well, the problem is if you separate those two things and you say, hang on, that's, that's, uh, inspiration is one thing, but preservation is a totally different thing. Well, no, it's not because God not just delivered the words, but he made sure those words were, were preserved. Um, some people don't believe that God was able to preserve the words that he delivered in the first place. Well, why bother delivering the words in the first place? If he couldn't preserve them in the second place. God God is not like that. So in Psalm 12, 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. So there's step one. God gave us perfect, perfect words. The exact words that he wanted us to read. And verse 7 says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them. From this generation forever. The operative word being them shall preserve them. What did he give us in the first place? Perfect words. What does he do in the second place? Preserves them. Okay? As I told you last week, the preservation of the Word of God required first perfect inspiration, that the words were written down or memorized, and the next step is that he preserves those words for all generations. God has both delivered and preserved his word unto this day, and he guarantees it into the future. Okay, Let's look at some scripture verses that reinforce this promise that God has made about preserving his word to the end. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes. If you have Ecclesiasticus in your Bible, please come and see me after this sermon ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 14 for those of you who don't know what i'm talking about Ecclesiasticus is part of the apocrypha which is in the catholic bible okay. ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 14 says i know that Have you all found that we don't go to ecclesiastes too often Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14 says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, more anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. You know, when God makes a decision about something and he says, This is what it is, you can't change it. God's will will continue, regardless of men's efforts and men's. uh, and means uh, desires to see something different, and Scripture is no less of a work of of, uh, of God than creation itself. the The way God cre- uh, brought us Scripture, the way He gave it to us perfectly, the way He has preserved it, is God's, like God saying, "Let the world come into existence," and it's His job to preserve it. He'll preserve His Word as well. One of the things that should make us revere God more, you know, as we, the Bible says that you look up at the stars and you look at creation, that should make you revere God, shouldn't it? should make you look to him and say, wow, what awesome power and wisdom you have. When you look at the 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 way the universe is, the way it works, the laws of the universe, and the more we find out, the more complex we see that it is, it's just amazing. When we see life and we look at ourselves and we see the way our DNA uh it, moulds a person and has all the information packed into it more than any other computer ever created on this planet, um, you have to say, how amazing are you, God? In the same way, when God actually gave us the words thousands of years ago, gave it to men, and we can still read those same words today, you have to really say to yourself, how amazing are you? That you got this to us, preserved in that particular way. It should cause us to revere God more and more when we look at the amazing things that he has done. And the preservation of his word is one of those things. Turn with me to Psalm 33, verse 11. Psalm 33, verse 11. It says there, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart, to all generations. The thoughts of his heart, to all generations. His counsel stands forever. What God has chosen to reveal to mankind, the advice that he gives us in his word, the counsel, the laws, the precepts, the, 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 the things that he has shared with us in his word, stands forever. And what I love about this particular verse is it says the, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. You know, when you, um, when you want to get to know someone personally or you want to make yourself vulnerable to someone else and you want to share something really close to you, we, 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 we have a phrase where you say you, you speak from the heart. okay. And when you speak to the, from the heart to someone else, you're sharing your, your inside. Okay? And the Bible, the, the, the scriptures here says that God wants a personal relationship with mankind. He desires that relationship. He wants to be known on a personal level. And so the Bible is God's speaking to us from his heart. It reveals, a, it reveals himself. It reveals the depths of his nature. It reveals what his desires are. It reveals to us how he is with us and how much he loves us. It's his love letter. To this world, and the Bible says that that letter, that information that He's told us about Himself, the way He's revealed and opened up His heart to us and says, Look at this, is who I am. Yeah, I want you to come and know me. Um, will stand for all generations, it will never be lost. And that's found in His Word. If you took away the Bible, how could you know the, the heart of God? How would you know it? You can't. It's only because God has gone out of his way to share this amazing truth about himself that we can actually come to know him on a personal level. Look at Psalm 100, verse 5. Because this now touches on um, the same sort of notion. It's reinforced in this particular uh, verse. Psalm 100, verse 5. It says, For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And His truth endures to all generations. The reason that God has chosen to preserve His word for us, the reason He gave it to us, the reason He's given us and revealed His heart and spoken to us from His heart is because He's good. And He loves us. And this particular verse says that in a very, very neat and succinct way. Lord loves us. And he's good. But if the Lord could not preserve the integrity of the words of his truth, how could it be said that the truth of the Lord endureth forever? You can't. Because we know that a, a phrase or a statement can go from a truth to a lie with how many changes of words? One. One word. can can make a whole statement go from true to false. So how important is it for God to keep out the words that aren't supposed to be there and to keep in the words that are supposed to be there? It's very important. And God promised to do that because he's good. Turn to Psalm 119 with me, verse 89. Psalm 119:89. It says there, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in. Where is it? In heaven. Forever, thy word is settled in heaven. It's confirmed. It's locked in. <laughs> it doesn't change. It is being confirmed in heaven, which is the eternal abode. And if it's, if it's locked in, if it's preserved in the eternal abode, then it's here as well in the temporal because that's the reason he created it in the first place. Look at go to flip forward to verse 50, 152 in that same Psalm. So 119, look at verse 152. It says, Concerning thy testimony, speaking about God, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Whatever God has given to us, whatever He has founded, whatever He has told us in His word has been founded forever. It's established. And this is the the same thing it means that it's settled in heaven. Ultimately, the Bible will not be corrupted. It can't be lost. Despite the the, the best efforts of people throughout the ages to, to outlaw it, to destroy it, to burn it, to vilify it, Uh, to try and say all manner of things against it, Um, even in our culture today, which is supposed to be intellectual, which is the exact opposite of what it actually is, um, as many arguments as they throw against it, they can't destroy it. And it will never be destroyed because it is settled. And it will achieve whatever God set for it to achieve. Whatever God designed that word to do, it will achieve its purpose and not come back void it will do its job and it has done that job in our own lives hasn't it it has saved us and actually made us his children it has achieved its purpose in our lives and our hope our hope is that that word will achieve the same result in other people's lives but what we find is that god uses that word through people which means we we are part of this equation We are locked into this word as well. God doesn't just put a book somewhere and then it magically does things without people using it and reading it and sharing it and memorizing it. God uses people to actually achieve those purposes. Turn to Isaiah chapter 59 verse 21 with me. Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah 59 verse 21 I shared this this, uh, this particular verse with you last week I just want to reiterate it it says the as for me the lord says as for me this is my covenant with them saith the lord my spirit that is upon thee and my words which i have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth nor out of the mouth of thy seed nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed saith the lord from henceforth and forever Amen. you see according to isaiah the very words of god are preserved and will be preserved connected to its usage by his people so god preserved His word through his people And we're going to see an example of that. So half of the sermon is about giving you some verses about what God has promised. And then the second part of this particular uh, uh, sermon is going to show you how historically God has not stopped working to preserve his word and how we have come to have this particular Bible in our hands today. It's only going to be a snippet of the historical uh, basis for the King James Bible, but it will be enough, I believe, to encourage you this morning about his preserving power. The scriptures, God says in this particular verse, will be preserved by use, not by disuse. Does that make sense to everyone? By the use of His word, it's going to be preserved through multiple generations. In fact, through all generations. Um, so people are key to how God will preserve His word. Now let's see what Jesus says about His word. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. All right, so Jesus, I've only used two verses here. Because we're going to look at verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 first. And Jesus says very clearly, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Okay, so man lives not by uh, just bread, and not by toilet paper, apparently. Okay, <laughs> but he lives by every. Word that proceeds out of the mouth of God okay there are some people who are who think that they 're going to die if they don 't have all the things that they've been used to in this uh, in this life and all the comforts and things that they 're used to if they don 't have them um, all of a sudden their world is going to come to an end. My mum reminded me the other night that um, newspapers used to be probably the most um, common uh, thing oh sorry Don's having a laugh as well. Um, yes, so newspapers used to be before the toilet rolls were in were uh, in, in common circulation. Um, yeah, it was the Herald Sun. Not because it was such a bad, it was a bad thing, but um, it was a uh, yeah, it was a thing. Okay. So times have, times have changed, but isn't it interesting how people believe that their world is going to fall apart if they don't have certain. Things that we deem, or they deem, as necessities of life. As if they'll stop existing. If they don't have their favorite shampoo, or their favorite, uh, you know, whatever it is. Um, So, the Bible tells us that man should not live by bread alone. You know, it doesn't live by the things that you consume. Okay, that's not us. It's not who we are. In fact, if tomorrow they they, they took away 90% of the things that, that we take for granted, Okay? Um, and you only lived on 10% of what you, uh, what you had before or what you have now, God still can look after you. Okay? And it's, the more important thing is that we live by the words that proceed from the mouth of God. That, that's the things we need to understand, is that by his decrees, by his words, we live. And that, those words are found in his word. Okay? Look at Matthew twenty-four thirty-five. Jesus goes a, a step further now. Alright, so he's told us that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every mouth that, that every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now Jesus says in chapter 24, verse 35, that there is something more sure than even heaven and earth itself. He says heaven, in verse 35, 24, verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now how was that? How could that be? that heaven and earth might disappear, right? But his words won't disappear. So which is more, which is more uh, trustworthy? Which is more preserved? His very words. His words. So who's he saying he is? He's saying is God himself. In fact, he says that not even a jot or a tittle will they disappear from the law until it is fully fulfilled. So we know that God has promised to preserve his word. Look at Matthew chapter 28 with me. Turn a turn a bit forward to Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 verse 20. And this one you have to do a little bit of thinking about, but you'll get the picture very quickly. Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 to 20 says, "And Jesus came and spake unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth." Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Amen. The important words here are, Whatsoever I have commanded you. Whatsoever. In order for this verse to be true, and if for us to be able to fulfill that verse and to teach whatsoever he commanded, which means every little thing, we have to have every little thing available to us, don't we? His word has to be preserved to today. His very words have to be looked after, guarded and kept. And God did the keeping. Jesus assumes here his words will be there regardless of what generation we live in. Whether it's the first century, when these words were written down in the first place, or the 21st century, his words are still available. God has preserved them, and he preserves them in order that we might be saved through the truth and not corruption. Which brings us to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Because for this verse to be true, we have to have the very words of God as well. So in order for us to share the gospel, we have to have the words of Christ. We have to be able to rely on them. And to be born again, we also have to have the words of Christ. We have to have the gospel. It has to be reliable. If it's not, then the Bible says there's a problem here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, Being born again, that's us. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So how many ways does God have to tell us the same thing? That this seed that's brought us life is incorruptible. It can't be destroyed. It can't disappear. It can't be wiped away. What's that seed that we are born by or through? It's the word of God. And what about that word? Well, it lives and abides forever. Turn a couple a couple more uh, verses up 25 first peter 1 25 says once again he repeats the same thought but the word of the Lord endureth forever and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you now for that word to be true to us today we have to have those words does that make sense to everyone do you see how the incorruptibility of the word of God, which lives and abides forever, must mean that if we desire it, if, if, if a person desires it, if a person prays for it, you know, Jesus says, knock it and shall be opened to you. Seek and you shall find. That's his word. If a person desires the word of God, God will deliver that word to that person. And God has delivered that word to us. Even though we may not have even asked for it. The word of the Lord endureth forever and this gospel that was preached in the first century is still being preached today because God has preserved his word. I'm going to share with you some uh, some things um, about how God has preserved his word. You know, God... We, look at the, we read the, the pages of the Bible and much of its history about how God has interacted with his people and, and with mankind from the beginning, right? So we look at that and we see amazing things that God has done. And then you think at the end of, that, of the book, right? We know the end of the story, right? But is God still working today? Does God still work today in history? Does he actually do things in history the same way he did, he's done them throughout, throughout the ages? Yes, he does. God didn't stop when when the the Bible was finished working in the lives of mankind. He has not stopped working in his church. He hasn't stopped working in the history of this world. We're going to look at some of those things now because he has not stopped preserving his word. And I'm going to show you just just a, a small facet of how he has preserved his word for us today. In 1330, 1330, some 200 miles south of London, a man was born... He wasn't born a man, but a person was born, called John Wycliffe. Who knows? Who's heard that name before? Okay. So John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe. In 1372, so 42 years later, in the midst of black plagues and things that were ravaging the country in the world at that particular time, um, he completed a doctorate at Oxford University that's how far back Oxford University goes, at least, 1372. Okay, um, He was considered uh, Oxford's leading philosopher and theologian. So the best theologian that they had at that particular time. And this fellow believed strongly that the scriptures ought to be available in the English language. He was convinced, because he studied the scriptures in Latin, that... The Word of God was supposed to be made available in the common language of the people, so that they could read it for themselves. Because of that, he made a number of enemies. A number of people didn't like him very much, because you see, there was a nice little system going on where only the priest had a copy of the Bible, and only the priest could share what he wanted from that from that uh, from that word. Um, because the belief was in the Catholic Church at that stage that if you gave the Bible to everyone, if everyone started reading it for themselves, guess what? They're going to come up with their own ideas about what they should do and how it should be and and what salvation should be all about. And there might be a lot of troublemakers out there who would come up with different doctrines and different religions. So the way to guard against that is you don't give the Bible to everyone. You keep it just with a few. But Wycliffe believed strongly that the scriptures would have be made available in the English language. He was an Englishman. So he began working on a translation. He started to write with his quill and the ink, and he started to make a translation. And he was a priest, mind you. And he was a priest. And as the more he studied, the more he read, the more he copied, began to see some problems. He started to question the communion. Because the Catholic Church believed and still believes that when when a priest rings a bell, that that bread actually becomes the body of Christ. And that wine or that juice actually becomes the blood. So if you spill that juice on the floor, you're literally spilling the blood of Christ on the floor. That's why why if a person who has communion at the Catholic Church are always holding their hand under their mouth ready to receive that, uh, that bread because just in case I drop it, I don't want to be dropping Jesus. Literally, that's what they believe. Okay, And they believe that when you eat that bread and drink that wine, although they don't give the wine to most people because it's a bit expensive, um, they, when they had that bread, because they're literally eating Jesus, right? they're gaining extra goodness and grace. Literally. Well, what's the better problem with this? He didn't believe it. He didn't believe the scriptures taught it. He also then didn't believe that you should be confessing to a priest. He didn't see that anywhere in the scriptures, that people have to confess their sins to other people. He didn't see indulgences where people paid money to a priest or a bishop to pray for their, their family members to get out of purgatory. You thought, that's a Scam. He didn't believe in the supremacy of the Pope. In other words, whatever the Pope says is true and actually supersedes the Bible. Now he, he began to believe what the Bible taught about itself, that it is supreme in what it teaches. And then he believed, which ruined the whole caper, salvation by grace through faith in opposition to church dogma. In fact, he wrote... He wrote himself, he said, Trust wholly in Christ. This is a Catholic priest, right? His words were, Trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on his sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. He hit the nail on the head. And for that, after he died, they hated him so much because he started a movement in England they hated him so much that they managed to dig up his bones from his grave. They burnt the bones. They crushed the bones into powder and they sprinkled the bones into the river. And they thought somehow that was going to hurt him. But they hated him most because he started to, to translate the Bible into English. They thought that English... Was a common language. It wasn't a holy language. Do you understand? So Latin was the, the preserved language, it was, a holy, it was a dead language, no one spoke it almost. But they believed that if you translated the Bible into English, into the common man's language, you were downgrading it. Do you understand what that means? You're making it common, you're making it like lower class. Problem is, what was the New Testament written in? Greek. And you know what type of Greek? Common Greek. Problem. Wycliffe died before he could finish translating the New Testament. But he ignited something in the English people. He ignited a flame for the desire of the Word of God. A belief that you could actually have the Bible for yourself and read it for yourself in your own language. Imagine that if you'd never had it before. We take it for granted, I think. We have we have copies all around us. You can have as many, you know, many prints as you like. You have it all. We have it all over the place. But imagine if you never had it for yourself. Imagine if you never heard it in your own language. If you could never read it for yourself. Well, this started a desire in people. In fact, he had a whole a, a whole group of people started uh, wanting this particular thing. on the 28th of October 1466 so Wycliffe um, Wycliffe was in the late uh, 1300s in 1466 a fellow called Desiderius Erasmus Rotterdamus um, known as Erasmus of Rotterdam was a Dutch philosopher and a Christian scholar who was widely considered to be one of the greatest scholars of the Northern uh, Renaissance Um, he was a priest in the Catholic Church as well Another troublemaker. He had a, a great desire for the scriptures, uh, and he made a great effort because he wanted to have a Bible that had four that in four different languages. Okay, like a parallel sort of uh, Bible. And in 1502 in Spain, a team of translators was brought, translators were brought together to create a compilation of the Bible in four languages: in Greek, in Hebrew, in Aramaic, and Latin. He wanted to get those uh, done. He wanted that to be as perfect as he could possibly could. So he spent a whole heap of time collecting as many Greek manuscripts as he could get his hands on and Old Testament Hebrew. And most of the manuscripts of the New Testament were what we would call today from the Byzantine family of of the scriptures, as opposed to the Alexandrian. See, every every, uh, manuscript that's available to us, and there are over 5,000 of them, right, the majority of them come from what's called the Byzantine line. Um, and the other, the other group comes from the Alexandrian line. And Erasmus chose to avoid the Alexandrian texts. From his understanding, they were, and from his own words, they were erratic, those texts. He saw that there was some problem with them, whatever was coming out of Alexandria. So he, he stuck with the Byzantine texts. And for the first time in his second edition, when he when he completed the second edition of the New Testament, the word you know how we had the New Testament. He was the first person to word to use the word testament in the Bible. He called it the New Testament, okay, and that's why we use that same word today. It comes from Erasmus, okay, and that edition was later used by Martin Luther to create the German translation of the Bible, so that his own people could uh, could read it. The third edition. Okay, which was then an improvement again, was used probably by Tyndale in England uh, for the first English New Testament and also became the, the basis for the Geneva Bible. We call the Geneva Bible the ones that the pilgrims went across to America with. So Rasmus published five editions of this parallel Bible in four languages, each one improving on the previous one. His work on the Greek New Testament later became a foundation four later versions of the, of the English Bible and the Greek New Testament in total. So he had such a great collection of these things that they became known as the majority text, or they became in line with the, what we call the majority text or the Byzantine New Testament. And it's, it's, it was the foundation for what the King James Bible was translated from which is called the Textus Receptus, which became the received text. That work that he began formed the foundation of the King James Bible. Anyway, let's move on to another man. William Tyndale was born in 1494. He was an Englishman who became a scholar and a priest. Right. William Tyndale could speak seven languages fluently and he was proficient in Hebrew and Greek. Seven languages. I mean, who could speak? Who speaks seven languages? And he knew, he knew, mind you, Hebrew and Greek proficiently. He was a priest. No, he was a priest. He had one main desire and guess what that was. He wanted to teach English men and women the good news of justification by faith. He became convinced of that. So Tyndale had discovered this doctrine when he read Erasmus' Greek New Testament. So he read in Greek the New Testament that Erasmus had put together and he became convinced convinced of salvation by grace through faith, which is what we believe. He became a champion of the gospel and had a great desire, funnily enough, for the Bible to be translated into English. English. And so he started work on that. So he committed to translating the entire Bible by himself, which he pretty much did. He completed the New Testament, which he revised, and he was the first person to ever print the New Testament in English. So Tyndale was the first person to ever print the New Testament in the English language. His translation was so good, so thorough that it became the foundation for the English Bible and later versions of the English Bible. In fact, his translation became a basis for the English language itself. That's how good his translation was. One historian commented that William Tyndale by himself loaded our language with more phrases than any other writer before or since. You know, many of the phrases that we take for granted that, you know, our um What are they, word? What are they idioms? Idioms? Yeah, the idioms that we use that we just take for granted and we and we and we speak them over and over again as if they are a lot of those came from Tyndale when he was translating the word of God. Nearly a century later, when the translators of the authorized or the King James Version debated on how to translate uh, the original language. Guess what? Eight out of ten times, because they had Tyndale's Bible there with them as well. Eight out of ten times, they agreed with Tyndale. That's a pretty good track record for someone who's translated the Bible all by himself. But for his effort, Tyndale was burned at the stake for translating the Bible, and he was burnt. Uh, he was burnt uh, in um, in Belgium in fifteen. Thirty-six. But before he was strangled, while he was being, while he was tied to a post, um, in a place called uh, Villward, Tyndale was given time to pray, and he was heard to cry out, "Lord, open the eyes of the King of England." That prayer was answered three years later, when King Henry VIII decided to make the Great Bible and say, we need a Bible in English. And that was called the Great Bible. And subsequent kings and queens of England opened the door further and further for the word of God to get into the hands of their people. English people became the most affluent when it came to the word of God because of the efforts of Wycliffe, Erasmus and men like Tyndall who prayed that the word of God would get into the hands of the people. Before that the only translation in that was available to people was in Latin which literally could only be read by priests. After the death of Queen Elizabeth I King James VI of Scotland became King James I of England. He ascended to the throne. And in 1604 he, had, he met with ministers, his ministers in Hampton Court Palace for an historic meeting. By this stage already there had been a number of Bible translations that had already been created. And those included the Kavadal Bible, Matthew's Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, and there were even more. So around the kingdom all right, of England, there were all these different translations of the Bible going around. Some were okay, some were better, some were not so good. And so they had a meeting with the King of England, King James I, who was actually a uh, he was a theologian in his own right, mind you. And the consensus of that meeting was to make one full, most perfect and authorised version of the Bible that could be read both in the churches and in the family home, that they could trust. And so began the work on the translation of the King James Bible. So 54 of the most learned... So they gathered 54 of the most learned Greek and Hebrew scholars of the land, which primarily came from Cambridge and Oxford Universities. 1,600, right? 54 men came together, the most talented uh, uh, translators of their generation, and maybe ever, who believed, all of them, believed in the infallibility of the word of God. You can't get that group today. You will never find a group today who will get together and believe the infallibility of the word of God who believe in salvation by grace through faith. You will not get those people together today to translate the Bible ever again. And most of these men who were brought together could not only write and translate Greek and Hebrew, they actually could speak it. They spoke it fluently. And they worked, these 54 scholars worked for seven years. Seven years. 54 people working for seven years. They worked, they toiled, they translated, they compared, they discussed, and they prayed to produce the most perfect work that they could produce by the grace of God. Fifty-four scholars, all believers, all committed to the word of God into into its purity and authorised by the King of England as well. In 1611, they finished their work. And there has not ever been a collection of such such gifted translators, neither has there ever been a group which believed the Word of God was infallible or inspired, nor has there ever been another Bible since which has influenced the English language and the people of the world more than this Bible that we hold in our hands today. The King James Bible became, after its release, the Bible. For the English people of the world Since 1611 You know you might You've heard it called different things right Sometimes you hear it called The King James Bible Or the other, other phrase is The authorised version You know for the Americans It was always the King James Bible So the Americans Were used to always calling it that But if you're in England You'd call it the authorised version That's why there are two different phrases. Because Australia is somehow stuck in the middle of America and uh, (laughs) England. Whatever you call it though, there is no other translation like it. And with the testimony of its origin, the people that went before it, that laid the foundation for it, there is no other book that has this type of testimony to it. There's no other book... That has influenced the world and the church as much as this translation. It is the preserved word of God and has been given to us obviously by the hand of God. By the providence of God. And it's a witness of his power to preserve his word for all generations. Now let me, I've been, I've been teaching, I've shared with you already, I've been teaching church history. And what's amazing is when you look at the circumstances that come together, That tell you that God's hand was in something. So if you look at something, you know, after Jesus ascended into heaven and they began to record the New Testament, that New Testament was written in the midst of a world that was pivotal in in that point in time. It was a place where was generally at peace. The Roman government was in power. The roads were safe and had been established. There was a temple in Jerusalem. Crucifixion was a form of punishment, which only the Romans brought on. And all the world spoke Greek. In the midst of this particular world, God sends his son. And he dies for the sins of the world on a cross created by the the Romans. And letters began to be written after his ascension into heaven about what he had done in... Greek. You know why Greek? Because Greek was the language that everyone in the world spoke. And you know why? Because Alexander the Great, hundreds of years before, had conquered the whole world and had spread Greek to the whole world. So even though the Romans were in power, everyone spoke Greek. That was the common language of the day. You wanted to write to some. if you were in the Middle East, you wanted to write a letter to someone in Rome, you wrote it in Greek. Greek. Because you knew that the person in Rome would understand Greek doesn't matter where you were. In the whole kingdom, everyone spoke Greek. So everyone wrote in Greek. And that's why your New Testament is written in Greek. Fast forward to the lives of John Wycliffe, Erasmus and Tyndale in the 12th, 13th and 14th century who laid the foundation for the King James Bible in 1611 or the 15th century. And understand that during these years, the English language had become one of the most descriptive languages in the world. And you had people and characters like Sir Isaac Newton, Sir Francis Drake, Sir Francis Bacon, Sir Walter Raleigh, and Shakespeare. You know, people in China study Shakespeare. That's how much influence the English language had, how descriptive it actually was, how poetic it actually was. And it took a long time for that language to come together. During that time, the Renaissance period erupted. The Reformation started. And some of the greatest universities the world has ever known were established in Oxford and Cambridge. Look at all the things that were coming together at that stage during those years. In addition to this, the expansion of the British Empire under Queen Elizabeth and those that rose after her meant that the English language was transported to every country around the world. The Lord was about to relaunch his word into a world now using the most sophisticated and advanced language the world has ever seen. To be carried by ships of the greatest naval fleet the world has ever known to reach the farthest places that this earth has by the largest empire the world has ever known. The largest empire. You we study history and we know the Greek empire, the Persian empire, the Babylonian empire. We know the, the Roman empire. But you know the greatest, the largest empire the world has ever known is actually the British empire. The largest empire. It covered... More area than any other empire in the history of mankind. When the Bible, when when the phrase says the sun did, does not set on the on the British Empire, there's a reason for it. The sun never set on the British Empire because it controlled so much land around the world that the sun was always shining on it, one place or another. If by 1913, so between 1611 and 1913. The British Empire held sway, by 1913, the British Empire held sway over 412 million people. It covered 23, almost a quarter of the world's land mass. And by 1920, it covered 35.5 million square kilometres. Now that's a, a pretty large area. Alexander had brought, Alexander the Great had brought Greek to the known world and had made Greek the common language of the world and that's why the New Testament was written in Greek. The British Empire brought English to the entire world and it's still the most common language today in the world. It's the standard of all the languages. Why do you reckon God created this translation of the Bible at that particular time using those particular people? Because it would reach the greatest amount of people in the world. God doesn't mess around. We see see God actually working in history today. We've seen it through history. And the reason we can have such confidence, confidence in this particular version of the Bible is because it has a history around it. It has God's fingerprints all over it. English is still the world's most the most common language and the King James version has stood for over 400 years. You know all the new versions that are coming out now, you reckon reckoning the last 400 years. Every new one that comes out knocks at the one before. Yet the KJV is still around 400 years later. And if you want to read it, you'll find the preserved word of God there. So congratulations. If you hold that version of the Bible in your hands, it was forged in the fires of persecution and tribulation and it rested in the faith of those who believed that God's words were true so God preserved his words through the faithfulness of his people and no other version on the shelves of Kurong has a history or a testimony like this book that we hold in our hands if you want to examine this Bible or the history of this Bible further Just take a little magnifying glass out and you'll find a whole heap of things going on that other other things don't have, other Bibles don't have. Another important, I'll just wrap up with this thought, another important factor of why we should trust this version above all the others is found in the manuscripts that it was translated from. Remember I told you that Erasmus had a whole heap of manuscripts. He collected a whole heap of manuscripts, which were later added on to more and more and more until they translated the KJV in 1611. But what they didn't use was a line that came from Alexandria. God has preserved his word so well for us. Actually, today we have 5,700 manuscripts, copies that had been copied by hand, going back to the early days. 5,700 manuscripts. And while some are complete, some are not, they form in total about 2 million pages of print. 2 million. You reckon God's preserved his word? He surely has. (coughs) Any difference? And some people will say, oh, there are differences in them. Well, 99% of all the differences in them are spelling errors and maybe a word switched around, which doesn't change, not one iota. Of all these documents, though, and we need to be mindful of this, 95% of those documents out of those 2 million plus pages represent what's called the majority text, the Textus Receptus, or the Byzantine text. It comes, it had its origins in the church of Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were sent out from. Okay? and they're called the Byzantine line of copies. 95% of all the copies that we have in the, in, the, in, the, in the world are from that particular line. The 5% that are remaining, that do not agree with the majority and do not agree with themselves, they disagree amongst themselves as well, are from what's called the Alexandrian line. Alexandria was a place in Egypt. And if you understand this line, you'll understand that Alexandria sent out a number of corrupted copies. Why? Because two particular individuals, just to, just to give you a little bit more background, a fellow called Clement of Alexandria was the first one to try and tie and bring together Greek philosophy with Christianity. No. And he had a protege. And his name was Origen. Origen of Alexandria. Notorious fellow. Origen went further than Clement ever, ever did. This fellow believed in reincarnation. He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. He believed in allegorical interpretation, which essentially means if I read something, I can pretty much say what I think it means. He believed there were so many different layers, which is all sounding very, very deep, but that each time he went into it, he came up with a different... Thing. So you could come out with different than me and something different than you. He introduced allegorical interpretation and he was the first textual critic. In fact, he was excommunicated from the church because he was believed to be a heretic. And guess what he spent time doing? He spent time editing the New Testament, changing it, because he didn't believe there were certain things that were supposed to be in there. So guess what he was doing? guess what he started? his followers started doing? It. They started copying the New Testament in their own version. They started ripping out things and changing things and taking things away because they didn't fit. And these false doctrines and these things that he did enabled cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses today to come up with their own version of the Bible. Hey, if he could do it, so can we. In fact, because we don't believe in the deity of Christ, let's look at origins versions. And let's see what he's got to say. And let me share something with you. Every modern translation of the Bible, every, every one of them, bar none. So it doesn't matter if it's a, the T, TIV, the NIV, the RSV, the uh, how many V's you want in there? The Corona V, the, the corona v is probably just <laughs> as right. Every one of them. Every one of them comes from, guess which line of text? The Alexandrian line. The Alexandrian line. So they don't choose the majority line. They choose the Alexandrian line. Because in their minds, they were found to be older. Older is not always better. So if you ever hear the word critical texts," or Nestle text, or the text of United Bible Societies, all those... Versions are coming from Alexandria, they come from a corrupted version and they do not agree with the King James Version. The only Bible version available which is the word, of, the word for word translation as well as coming only from the majority text or the Byzantine line or the Texas receptors is the King James Bible, the only one. So every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word you have in your hand is a gift from God above. Treasure it, Um, keep it, share it, tell others about it, because there are too many corruptions out there. And our world is swaying, not just from a coronavirus, but when it comes to the word of God they have little respect or knowledge of it. So it's up to us to share with them the truth. And remember that through this truth, through this word, we have been born again. God bless you. Thank you.